As we say when we light the candle every week, Advent means coming. Advent means coming. It's an appearing. It's a shining forth of the light or the glory of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now we could, we could instead of using the word Advent, we could speak of appearings. A first appearing and a second appearing. And our text, the New Testament lesson from Titus chapter 2, does just this. And in doing so, the text shows us the radical implications that the appearings of the Christ have for our lives. So we'll look at the text under three headings. They're there on the outline on page 5. The past, the present, the future, or alternatively, Grace, godliness, and glory. So first then the past. Again, this is Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The text says, For the grace of God has appeared. This is what has happened in the incarnation of the Son of God. It's an appearing, a coming, an unveiling, an epiphany, if you will, of the grace of God. In fact, the Greek word for appeared here, the grace of God has appeared, is the word for epiphany. The grace of God has made its epiphany. It's a manifestation of the glory spoken of by the prophets. We heard it in the Old Testament lesson this morning from Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine your light. Your epiphany has come, and the glory of the Lord has shone upon you, risen upon you. Right? The prophet continues, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen on you. And nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of this rising. This is the Christmas mystery, the luminous mystery at the heart of the faith. Jesus Christ, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, has come into the world. The day spring from on high, giving light to those of us who sit in the darkness. And the text says that this coming is an epiphany, a shining forth and appearing, Of the grace of God. There's a lot of ways Paul could have phrased this. But this is an arresting phrase. The grace of God has appeared. It's of immense significance. We think of the grace of God as his unmerited favor toward us. And that is good as far as it goes. But in fact, as we say here often, it's really not unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. We deserved judgment and got grace. But this text reminds us, shows us, that the grace of God is not a thing. Neither, Neither is it simply a disposition in God. Right? In the Latin... Catholic tradition, grace tends to be seen as a kind of thing, a kind of fluid. You can have more of it, you can have less of it, you can lose it. 
Protestants tend to think grace is a disposition of favor in God. This text says it's neither one of those things. Grace is what has appeared in the descent, in the steep descent of the Son into our humanity, in the indescribable gift of the Son. The text virtually identifies grace with the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's action in this one through the Spirit. And so the claim of the text is that in Jesus Christ incarnate, we have the embodied visibility, the appearing to our senses, right? In our empirical order, the concrete, tangible appearing of the very grace of God. So that the grace of God is neither some kind of fluid, some kind of metaphysical substance, nor is it some sort of just disposition in God. It is this one. He is the appearance of the love and the kindness of God. These, the grace of God, the love of God, the kindness of God are no longer abstractions. They are right there embodied in this one. This grace, God's grace, is that which stoops down, veiled and humble, gentle and lowly, loving and kind in the flesh of Jesus. And thus the scripture repeatedly links the grace of God with the person of the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. So a prime example of this is the famous Trinitarian benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, you know, may the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Grace is identified with Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. The incarnation, then, is the grace of God appearing. Now, we may be used to this, but this is a scandalous thing. It's an unprecedented thing in the world. right? We don't run businesses this way. We don't run states this way. We don't run schools this way. We don't run almost any institution this way. We run everything by merit and by reward and by competition and by earning or by force or by threat of coercion or by calculating or by counting or by winning. And this is another thing. Grace. All of grace only grace, all the way down. This is not the law of God appearing in Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God appearing. It's not the demands of God appearing. It's not the grace of God mixed with the law of God appearing. If you want that, you can get it from any institution and culture. It's grace appearing. Pure, unmitigated, unmerited Demerited grace. It's an announcement which requires you to do nothing but believe it. It's news of salvation apart from all of our works. In fact, not only apart from all of our works, in the teeth of our defiled works or our absent works or our bent works. It's unspeakably good news. 
It's so good that the Christian community tends to itself tune it out and assimilate it to some form of morality. We can think of grace as something passive, right? Very nice, but lacking potency. When we think of graciousness, we tend to think sweet, but generally harmless. Paul is saying nothing could be further from the truth. This grace, which has made its entry in Christ, is glorious grace, mighty grace, triumphant grace, invincible grace, amazing grace. It's a different sort of calculus. It's apocalyptic grace, Paul says. It's an eruption into time and space of the saving arm and might of God in the weakness of a baby to an utterly helpless people. And thus, the second half of verse 11 tells us that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Again, grace brings salvation. Law doesn't bring salvation and cannot bring you salvation. Law has its place. We can talk about that later. But right here, the grace of God appears, and the grace of God brings you salvation. There are basically two religious approaches in the world. Some sort of an approach where you have a series of things that you have to do to achieve some state, right? Or a salvation that's given to you freely, apart from all works. The grace of God appears bringing salvation from beginning to end then. Salvation is by grace, all of grace, grace alone. We object to this. We have little voices in the back of our head in the depths of our heart saying, but I have to do something. I mean, there must be something for me to do. I must contribute in some fashion. I must merit something somewhere along the way because that's how everything else works. So there is a great impulse embedded in the incarnation. It tells us God himself is the great missionary. The one who crosses the divide, who spans the gulf, and who in the person of his son comes to get us. Running like the father who waits there in the parable of the prodigal son, right? This is a father who runs out into the far country to get his children. To seek and to save the lost. And this grace made visible in Jesus Christ means salvation is offered promiscuously, right, to the ends of the earth, to all men, to all women, to all nations. It's salvation, the text says, for all people. It's a profoundly democratic salvation. It pays no regard to the accidents that attach to people's lives, the accidents of race or color or gender or wealth or class or status. It's salvation for all people. Salvation which Christ has brought is universal in range. And it shall be cosmic in its triumph. And Christmas means that this glorious grace, this grace which has appeared, has begun spreading its healing rays to the ends of the earth. That's the past. The second thing we want to look at is the present. 
or godliness. So what does the grace appearing do to us now? Well, we're we're told this in verse 12. Verse 12, we're told that this grace of God which has appeared is training us or teaching us. This word here for training is a famous and much studied Greek word, paideia. It means instruction or education. And it carries with it the idea of discipline, correction, teaching. So you've, been, you've entered into a school, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, an academy. And the tutor in this school is the grace of God, which makes it an utterly unique kind of school. The grace of God, which has manifested itself in Jesus Christ, is grace, Paul says, which trains us or which educates us for virtue. Again, the law cannot produce life or righteousness. Now, it can tell you what the standard is. It can guide you in that way. But grace is and must be the tutor in our school. Right? And that's, that's a word to us, right? If we're in positions of authority or teaching positions, our tutor is grace. The people who sit under our tutelage should hear grace. And, and what the incarnation trains us or educates us to do is in verse 12. And I want to look at it under three headings. These are three subpoints under the second point. And I'll call them the time, the no, the yes. So first notice the time in which this training is occurring. It's seen at the end of verse 12. In this present age. So when Paul talks like this, when he speaks of this age, he's not talking about one century or one time period, you know, like the Gilded Age or the Middle Ages versus another time period. That's not the way he uses this. He uses this term to speak of the whole sweep of human history between the first advent of Christ and his coming again in glory. The present age in this very text ends with his appearing in glory. Sometimes Paul calls this the present evil age. Or this present darkness. It's this time when the light is shining and the night is far gone. That was in our call to worship. That's Paul from Romans 13. It's the very existence of this time, the time created by Christmas, which enables something we might call Christian ethics or Christian education to arise. The things that we're called to do here in this text in this present age, will be unnecessary in the age to come. But now, in this time, they're necessary. This time of the already and the not yet. This time of what theologians, scholars call the overlap of the ages, right? The new age has arrived. The old age has not yet been destroyed. That time, this time, with all of its ambiguity and complexity and glory and misery, this time. And this is the time, Paul says, for Christian training and discipleship in the school of grace. So that's the time. Answering the question, what time is it, is really important. Secondly, let's look at the no. Paul says we are to renounce 
ungodliness. So this grace, right, it doesn't produce license. Having been instructed and tutored by grace, we renounce ungodliness. And it's a fierce sentiment in the text. Chrysostom, the 5th century church father, the bishop of Constantinople, says this. He says, see here the foundation of all virtue. He has not said avoiding, but denying. So there's a summons that grace issues to us. And it's a summons to renounce and to separate ourselves from evil. And the text says worldly passions. That is from desires or appetites which are ordered to and determined by the present world system or the present age. Now, this can be misread, right? Christianity is a profoundly life-affirming faith. I mean, think about it. After all, I mean, there's a lot of ways we could talk about this, but if God himself, if God himself has been born of a human mother, and became man, then our human existence has been hallowed and given an enormous and inestimable dignity. Right? I think it was Chesterton who said, if the incarnation is true, then matter matters. And if matter matters, then your embodied material reality has an enormous dignity. But we must not lose sight of the fact that in affirming the good, we must first renounce all that mangles the good, the good creation, all that distorts us as human beings made in the image of God. Right? The commands are not giving because God is, you know, you know a, a, a sort of a scolding schoolmarm. They're given because he wants to restore us to the image and the reflection of his glory. This is the God, after all, who has descended in Jesus Christ to us. So we have to be educated in the school of renunciation and the first class in the school of virtue. So you have a school of virtue. The headmaster of the school is the grace of God, which has appeared in Jesus Christ. And the first class in the curriculum, is entitled simply, no. That's it. We must say no to ungodliness and to disordered passions. This is why, you know, eight or nine of the Ten Commandments are in the negative form. So it's a summons, then, into the way of the cross, into a life of self-denial and mortification, And the basis of this no is the appearance of the one who, verse 14 says, gave himself to redeem us, to liberate us, to free us from lawlessness. So the grace of God which has appeared does not lead to license. It leads to liberation. So that's the time. That's the no. Finally, there's a yes here. We are in the middle of verse 12, trained by the same grace to live positively. Sober, upright, just, it says, godly lives. It's only a couple words from Paul, but it is a, it's a comprehensive ethical vision which includes our relation to ourselves, always perhaps the first relation to be mastered, right? A relation to ourselves in the, in the word there that is translated self-control. Our relation to our neighbors in the word there that is translated just or upright. 
and our relation to God in the word that is translated godly. By the way, it's probably these three words from Paul which inspired the famous prayer in the Book of Common Prayer, which you've heard here in many of our confessions of sins, where we ask that we might live a sober, righteous, and godly life. Same three ideas. This is referred to in verse 14 as Christ purifying for himself a people zealous for good deeds. The yes, then, is an active life of goodness, an active life of charity. I'm going to focus on the one word, godly. It's a one-word summary of Christian behavior. It has some maybe um, tinny associations in our ears, perhaps, but I want to recover the word and its glory, right? Just think about what it means. It means we are to live as reflections of God himself, as images of the divine goodness in human form, precisely because the divine goodness has taken human form. Thus, as Christians, little Christs. So godliness, then, is a glorious and exhilarating ethical calling. It begins with renunciation, but it moves on to the positive formation of virtue. The same gracious word of the gospel which calls us to say no goes on to say yes. We put off the old, we put on the new, right? We mortify the flesh, we are quickened and vivified into life. We are slain and made alive, always and ever. No, then yes. No, then yes. This is the form of Christian ethical existence in the school of the grace of God. And lest we lose sight of it, let me repeat All of this ethical instruction, the no and the yes, all of it, is the continual training and education of the grace of God, which has appeared in Jesus Christ. Again, it's still all grace, all the way down, all the way home. No by grace, yes by grace. Now, this life of self-renunciation and virtue, it's often counterintuitive to us, I think. Uh, we might think or be tempted to think, well, if I'm saved by grace, right? I'm saved by the blood of Christ alone, precisely because I can't save myself by my own goodness. Therefore, how big of a deal could it be if I engage in some life of ferocious renunciation, this no, or this passionate pursuit of God-likeness, the yes, We do these kinds of things, right? We think like this. But that's a grievous misunderstanding. And it misunderstands the very logic of the grace which has appeared. And here I want to zoom out and see the big picture. The very birth of Christ itself. The appearing spoken of in our text in verse 11. Right? That appearing is one of majestic, divine renunciation. Right? It is the Son stripping himself laying aside his glory, feeling, failing you know, to grasp his equality with God, not holding it as a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, renouncing his prerogative as one equal to God, considering it nothing. And 
And this renunciation of Christ, his no, is at the same time, at every point, a profound yes to the Father and yes to his love for you. Right? From the incarnation to the cross, his is one long act of unspeakable obedience, costly obedience to the Father. Not my will, no, but thy will be done, yes. It's the very logic of grace itself, unveiled at Christmas in the incarnation, which educates us in the school of godliness, the school of Christmas present. That brings me to the third final point, glory. Beginning in verse 13, says we live in the present age as those who are waiting for our blessed hope. <clears throat> Christmas thrusts us out of the old world. The grace of God has appeared. But not yet fully into the new one. And thus the whole Christian life is awaiting for. And we see this throughout Advent, right? It's awaiting for. It's a radical orientation to the future. We've turned from idols, Paul says, to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. We yearn for Advent to be fully consummated. For the time we heard from Isaiah, when there'll be no light, no need for the sun or the moon, but the glory of God and the Lamb will be our eternal light. We're waiting for that time when the very effulgence of the now exalted and transfigured Christ irradiates the whole creation with his glory. That and nothing less is the Christian hope. So, What does this mean then? Well, it means that renunciation and godliness under the grace of God are not enough. A basic frame of the picture would be missing. Renunciation and godliness are fundamental facets of waiting for your blessed hope. That's the way Paul thinks of it. He doesn't think you're doing three different things here. You're saying no to evil. You're... uh, trying to be virtuous, and you're also waiting. He says, you're saying no to evil and putting on the yes of virtue as a waiting, yearning, longing people. This is the frame of the Christian existence. So if the first class in the school of virtue is entitled simply no, right? the first question to be asked is, what time is it? What are you yearning for? What are we waiting for? And Paul's told us, right? he's told us in this text, It's the time of the present fallen age. It's the time of waiting for the blessed hope. So Christian behavior, Christian ethics, if you will, Christian moral theology, Christian moral engagement, right, is from beginning to the end the ethics of yearning for the immortal light and glory of the new creation. Everything is structured this way. Advent anticipates his coming in glory. The gospel, Paul says in Colossians 1, is about a hope laid up for you in heaven. The sacraments are an anticipation of that feast to come. The spirit is a pledge of your full inheritance. Everything conspires toward the consummation. Thus, virtue in the Christian life, and here I just draw on the tradition, right, is preparing to die. Christian ethics is about dying well. Fitting a person to die. Why? Because virtue is more broadly about 
preparation or being fit for the beatific vision, the epiphanic light of God that everyone sees on the moment of death. Right? Virtue is preparation for the future, for the blessed hope, which the latter half of verse 13 says, calls it the appearing or the epiphany, right? the currently hidden epiphany of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is Christmas future. Right? The appearing of the one who is the object of all our desire, the end of all our longing. Right? The grace of God, then, trains us for an end. It trains us for an end. Maybe that's the simplest way to put it. This school has an end. There's a graduation day. And the end is not simply an ideal, right? Christianity is not an ideal, even a moral ideal, right? It's the end of history. That's the end. It's the resurrection of the dead. It's the restoration of all things, especially redeemed human beings in the radiance of Jesus Christ. That's where the school goes when you graduate. So let me close. I just want to point out here, notice this in the text. Notice the repetition of the word appeared or appearing in verse 11 and in verse 13. He whose divinity was veiled in the appearance of grace shall then be revealed fully as our God and Savior in the appearing of glory. The grace of God has appeared. We're waiting for an appearing. Last week, I think it was Christina Quirk, who read during our Christmas program up here, and she read and and she said, during Advent, we're to have a bifocal vision, right? Looking back to the first appearing and forward to the second. And I told her I was going to steal that, but at least I attributed it. But that's exactly right. And notice in this text, there are two, when we say the two Advents are locked together, this is one of the classic texts for it. The grace of God has appeared, and while we are renouncing and growing in virtue, we are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This hope is our blessed hope because it's assured. Grace, then, gives birth to godliness, which stretches forward to glory. So praise be to God for the grace that has appeared, for the education and virtue that it brings, and for the hope of glory that it guarantees. Amen.